Father, we just want to confess this morning that you are all we need, God. And help us to learn from the example of Job that we even saw last week, Father, that though you slay us, God, we trust you. Lord, that we would worship you and follow you knowing that you are doing something far bigger and grander than we could ever imagine, God. So, Lord, we ask that you meet us this morning as we come to your word, that you would speak through it, that you would meet us in our hurts, you'd meet us in our triumphs, and you would speak into our lives by your spirit, God. And so, Lord, we give you this morning, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. We're going to jump back into the book of Job this morning. As you heard, we got four weeks in Job. This is week number two. And uh, I hope you take the time over the next couple weeks to read this book. It is a fantastic book. It's a great drama. It's a tragedy. It's really hilarious. It's just a great book to read. In fact, I hope, you know, like after The Chosen, they would do just like a short series on Job. I think it would be great. Um, But I also had an interaction with Job once. I'll show you a picture here. These are bad pictures, but um, do we get the pictures, Rob? Yeah. So one time I went to one place in Oman, the country of Oman, that claims to have Job's grave. Here it is. So me and Job hung out for a while. He was like nine or ten feet tall, I guess. And uh, then Amy's got her foot by his foot. His foot was really big, so there's Job's footprint. Now, whether this is Job's grave or not, nobody knows. But kind of fun to think about, right? So as we talked about last week, Job is the story of this great man from the east. Right, that God said in Job 1 1 was blameless and upright, feared God, turned away from sin, and God had blessed him with vast possessions, a huge family. And then Satan comes and says, Let me test Job a bit, God. Right? And first he strikes all that Job has as God allows him to do so, and it says that Job fell on the ground and worshiped the Lord. And Satan comes again and asks God to have another shot at Job. says, yeah, he, he'll keep following you just when you take away his possessions, but if you touch his person, he'll turn away from you. God says, knock yourself out. See what happens. And Satan attacks Job with a disease, a horrible disease. And it says in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Right? He's looking and trusting in God. In fact, his wife can't believe that Job won't do this. In, in Job 2.10, she's a really good influence. She says, she says, you ought to curse Job, God, or curse God, Job. And then Job responds and says, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? So we get a little window into Job's theology at the end of Job chapter 2, that he's placing all that has happened to him in the hand of God. And that's the right place. Once you see that, this is the right place. There's nothing that comes into your life that hasn't passed through God's hands. And so when we're facing things, he's the one we ought to look to. And that's what Job is going to do throughout this book. And as we've said, we often think about the book of Job as a book about suffering, which it is. Job suffers tremendously. These sores are terrible. In fact, in Job chapter 3, he's got this long poem of lament that this says God I wished I was never born and if I've got to be born can you go ahead and kill me because this is terrible in fact it says when his friends came to sit with Job that he was unrecognizable he is suffering deeply but as Pastor Jim pointed out last week this is also a book of faith that Job is trusting God in the midst of these 
storms of life. But we're going to see today that this book is also a book about wisdom. In fact, this is the biggest question of the book. Job 28.12, I think, summarizes it. Where shall wisdom be found, Job says? Where is the place of understanding? Who understands all that I'm experiencing and going through? In fact, that's the question. Is it Job? Is it going to be his three friends? Is it God? Who, who understands all of this? And so they're going to debate who is right and who is wrong and who has wisdom. So as we return to the book of Job in chapter 3, starting in chapter 3, what we're going to see is there's three cycles of speech in Job. There's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and each one is going to say something to Job, and he's going to respond. And they do this three times, and they're working at this question. Where's wisdom? What's happening to Job? Who knows what's going on? And so we will look at that uh, this morning. And really, chapters 4 through 37, that's what we're looking at. That's a lot. Uh, but there's two big themes that emerge. We're going to deal with one this week, and then Mike Kirby next week is going to deal with the other. This week we're going to look at retribution and God, and next week we'll look at God's sovereignty. So we'll look at retribution today in a couple different ways. First, we'll look at, does God seek retribution? This is the major question. Second, what happens if we believe God is this way, that he's retributive? And then finally, what are the gospel answers to this question that Job gives us? So let's deal with this question and just kind of enjoy the story of Job here. Does God seek retribution? And retribution means punishment or vengeance. It's inflicted on somebody for something they have done wrong. And if we believe God operates this way, then we believe that if I do evil, then I get evil. Okay, God... God attacks me, and God will punish me specifically for my sin. If I do something bad, bad things will happen to me. This week I got a spam attack on my email. You may have seen that. And uh, the first day I got 1,000 spam emails. The next day I got 4,000 spam emails. The next day I got a couple hundred. Then I got a couple days of 10. Yesterday I got another three or 5,000. And retributive with theology would say, well, you must have sinned, Jared. Right? God's punishing you. Some days you did a little better than others, but God's punishing you. And the converse is also true in retributive theology. If I believe I do good, then God will bless me. Right? I have a good day, then God makes things go my way. I do good, God gives me good. This is kind of our hashtag blessed church culture, right? We think we do good and God blesses us. I like to think that way better than the other way. But I want you to see that this is humanity's default religious thinking that they're wrestling with. We all think this way to some degree. I have to do the right things. I have to do the right rituals. I have to keep the right rules so that God is happy with me. Maybe even bless me. And if I don't, he's going to punish me. He'll seek retribution. And if we think about God this way, it's kind of like Kevin and I were talking about this. You know, I used to go to Opryland in the 80s in Nashville, and they have all those, you know, all those games, and one of them is like the, the mole that pops up and you whack it. Like, that's how you begin to think about God. I do the wrong thing, and God's like, whack, right? And our city and our culture is full of this thinking. We all believe it to some degree. 
In fact, I want you to see, this is our default thinking. And, and many of us learn this as kids. We learn right from wrong, right? When we do the right things, we get good things. We do the wrong things, we get bad things. We parent like this. And there's some wisdom to that. Proverbs shows us generally if you do good, you'll get good. Generally, if you do bad, you'll get bad. But that's not necessarily how God operates towards us in our sin and the ways that he loves us. And so we're going to see that. So this is what Job and his friends are debating. Are, is Job being punished for his sins? And Job says, no, I'm innocent. And his friends are saying, no, you're, you're sinful. Let's look at how this goes. Eliphaz kicks off round one of the discussion, Job 4.2. He says, look, Job, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? In other words, we have to point this out to you, Job. You, you need to hear this, and you're probably going to be mad. That's what he starts to the man that's in deep suffering. Job 4, 7 and 9, Eliphaz continues. Remember this, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and, they, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. In other words, look at it, Job. People don't face suffering like this unless they've done something really evil and sinned against God. In essence, you're suffering because of your sin, Job. Well, thanks. You ever had somebody say that to you? I was talking with Tono, Pastor Tono this week, and he was saying his brother Marari, when he was headed to his first radiation treatment for his brain cancer, another pastor in town said, oh, I want to come, I want to come. And he came and he got in the car with him and they thought he was going to be a support, but all he did was dress his brother down for you must have sinned for God have done this to you. This is how we think. This is retributive thinking. It's natural to us. This is religious thinking. And while, yes, God does hate sin, he will punish sin. Sometimes he even acts retributively. That's not what he leads with. We're going to see that he leads with grace. And so these guys have something to learn. In fact, Eliphaz has given us half theological truths and half error. This is one of the best tricks of Satan, that he takes something of God, and, and it's mostly true, but he twists it just enough so it'll take you on a path far from God and who he is. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, you won't die if you eat the fruit, at least not immediately. And actually, it's good for you, you'll know right from wrong, that's true, you will, but it's not good for you. And it gets worse. Look at how Eliphaz knows what he's saying is to be truth. Eliphaz backs his theology up with this, this freaky encounter with some spirit. Okay? Job 4, 12 through 16, he talks about the, how this spirit came to them, came to him at night. It, it made him shake. It kind of glided by his face and made his hair stand up. And then he says he hears a voice that says in verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He's saying, this is how I know these things to be true. The Spirit told me. Who do you think appeared to Eliphaz to twist his theology? If you remember, Satan's one of the main characters in this whole drama that we saw in chapter 1. He wants to curse Job to curse God. And what a better way to get at Job than coming through one of his friends. 
This is what he did with Adam and Eve. He came through Eve, twisted the truth so that Adam would fall into sin. And again, Eliphaz is half right, right? Romans 3, 9 through 12, we're all under sin. None is righteous. None seeks after God. None does good. But it's not true that Job has sinned in such a way that he can't get before God and figure it out. And if we know the gospel, we also know there's a way to stand before God as righteous and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Let's be careful to let our theology be driven by visions and experiences instead of rooting it in God's Word, the Bible. There's a spiritual kind of one-upmanship that we see here that can come. And Eliphaz is trying to prove he's more spiritual. In fact, all of his friends will say they're more spiritual. We must learn to discern and hear God's voice clearly through his word so that we are not led into error. And Job responds to this, Job 7.14. Look, guys, I'm suffering here and I'm trying to rest, and then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions? Knock it off. Here's Eliphaz's solution to Job, Job 5.8-9. You ought to seek God, Job. Okay, right? This isn't bad advice. If I've sinned, any situation, anything going on in my life, that's good advice. Seek God, right? Sinned or not. Throughout this book, we see Job seeking God for the solution. This is the right place, like we said. Job 10, 1 through 2, he says, look, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you condemn me contend against me this is something Job gets right and I think the Bible gives us an open invitation to always look at God in all of life's moments and say God what is going on I don't understand I don't like what's going on God help me what is happening I think we got to learn to turn to God quicker in all of those circumstances in fact, we see this, Luke 13, 1 through 5, you know, Jesus gives this story that this tower fell over on a bunch of people and it killed them. And the people, you know, he says, were these people worse sinners than everybody else? And the answer is no. So that's not retributive theology. Not God's not killing them for their sin necessarily. But he says, you ought to seek God. Let it remind you, whatever you see going on, let it point you to God, right? That's the right answer. And we see that in this book. And everything, as we've said, is in God's hands. He's brought it into our life. And when we face trouble, it could be consequences for our sin. That's not totally untrue. Could be to sanctify us. Could be that God has reasons you'll never know or understand. Could be God is doing a million things through one act. But he's also the one that can stand with you and walk you through the situation. He can reveal sin if there's sin. But he can bring about change. And so we take our complaints to God. Job teaches us that. But Job also teaches us to be ready for his answer. <laughs> we'll see that in two weeks. And Job's response in round one is like, great, thanks guys, I get it, but I have one problem. Job 6.10, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I haven't done anything wrong. In fact, twice in the opening chapters, Job 1.22 and 2.10 tells us Job has not sinned. He has not done anything that would warrant this kind of consequence from God for sin. 
And then Bildad, his buddy, has this hilarious thing to say to him. Job chapter 8, after Eliphaz is done, verse 2, How long will you say these things, Job? In the words of your mouth, be a great wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what's right? If your children have sinned against them, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Ouch. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. He just said, your, sin, your kids died because of their sin. Their tent fell on them and killed them because of their sin. And Job, if you don't learn from them, God's going to get you too. This is retributive thinking. And then Zophar jumps in, chapter 11, 2 through 6. He says, God exacts, exacts less of you than your sins deserve. Well, thanks for that. You ought to suffer more, Job, says the guy who hasn't lost anything in his imperfect health. <laughs> Me and Kevin were joking about this week. I was telling Kevin about my spam thing. He says, you're getting less than you deserve, Jared. You ought to have a million spam emails. And at the same time, I also, this was super weird, I had like three or four spiders that came down in front of me that day. Kevin says, you deserve a million, right? And this is half truth, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we all deserve. However, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do deserve death, but that is not how God operates. He is gracious and loving and merciful and has a plan to save us through His Son. In fact, the fact that we are all alive and haven't faced death immediately upon sinning means there is more at play than God being retributive. It should signal to us that there is a gracious God that stands and is patient to work with us so that we can find salvation. In fact, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient towards us and doesn't want anyone to perish, but one day he will call you to an account. And the conversation goes on and on. I love that. Look at this second round, Eliphaz, Job 15, 1 through 3. He says, look, Job, are you really going to keep talking like this and insult God? Verse 15 and 16, God puts no trust in abominable and corrupt men, of which you are, Job, who drink injustice like water. <laughs> Saying, Job, you're an awful dude. And Job's response, 16.2, I have heard many such things. In other words, thanks. Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> Bildad says, don't be stupid, Job. In Job 18, wicked people receive punishment from God. Job 20, Zophar pipes in, piles it on, says again, this is the way things are. If you do bad things, God will punish you. You can see how they're going round and round. And then Job has a really good defense. He says, but wait, look at guys, here's the problem. You're saying that bad people get punished, but I see that the wicked guys prosper. What's up with that? Job 21, 7 through 19, the, the wicked people, they grow old, they have lots of kids, they are prosperous, their kids are prosperous, and they even say, we hate God. When's God going to give them theirs? And here I am, innocent, facing punishment. And maybe you felt the same way, right? We see this in our world all the time. How come the bad guys prosper? That's what Job is saying. 
And this is a good warning to us because, look, just because life is good doesn't mean God is happy with you either. If the wicked prosper, then if you're, and they're actually apart from God, if we're prospering, that doesn't mean we're with God. This undercuts a lot of our popular evangelical thinking today. Ease of life, lots of stuff, everything feels perfect, doesn't mean you're walking with God. You could be far from Him. It's important for us to seek God and His Word and let Him be the judge of our life. Third round, look at this. Eliphaz gets really dirty now. And he charges Job with all sorts of wrongdoing because he's annoyed. And I think maybe he's even jealous of what Job's life was, of what he had and what he had with God. Job, in fact, he says, Job, if you can't see what's wrong, I'll tell you what's wrong. Job 22, 5 through 11, Job, there's no end to your evil. You've taken advantage of the poor. You've taken advantage of the hungry. You've taken advantage of the needy. And you have oppressed widows and orphans. Ouch. Eliphaz again says, look, agree with God. Be at peace and there'll be good that comes to you. Just admit your sin, Job. I've seen it. Bildad says something similar, Job 25, 4 through 6. There is no way man can be right before God or pure. In fact, we are just maggots and worms. Job 23, 3, Job's response in 7. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to his seat there, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. If somebody would just fight for me. In fact, Job defends his conduct. In Job 29, 12 through 17, he says, no, you're, you're wrong. Actually, I've cared for the poor at every turn. Uh, I've done everything I can to help orphans and widows. Uh, I've done so much. Why can't you see it? And I love this. We love this verse too. Job 31, 1 through 3. He says, look it. I've even made a covenant with my eyes that I don't gaze upon a virgin. We love this verse in, in men's ministry, right? He's saying, ah, look, I'm so clean, I haven't even looked upon a woman, unholy guys. And yet we see here that he also believes the retributive theology just a little bit. Look, look at what he says in 31.2. What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? In other words, he's saying, I've been pure so that I will get good things from God. And if I hadn't, if I had looked at women incorrectly, he would have punished me. And this is where I think we feel in our sexual sin, our brokenness, the retributive hand of God. We believe in that so much that, God, if we sin in this way, you are going to punch us in the face. <laughs> right? That's what keeps us from getting healed. Keeps us from seeing the grace of God, even in those dark sexual sins. So let's look at what happens to us when we see God in this way. If you think God is retributive, that God punishes you when you do wrong and rewards you when you do right, it's ultimately going to make you crazy. I've seen this. It'll make you crazy or, or you'll be really mad at God and ultimately you're going to walk away from Him because you can't take it. Seen this, we, Kevin and I have a mutual Christian friend. He, he, he scrutinizes everything he does to such a degree it's driving him mad. He can't live with himself. He sees everything he does is not perfectly 
righteous and therefore there's always a degree of sin or evil in what he does and and he just thinks God's perpetually mad at him that God's going to get him. He feels powerless to do anything else. Been there? He's going nuts, afraid God will cast him off, punishing him over the smallest sins, not ever sure where he stands with God. He's depressed, he can't live up. And this is legalistic and religious thinking that I got to do to get God's favor. So we set up a list of rules for ourselves, and if we're good at keeping them, then guess what? We get really prideful. We go, man, I am a good dude. And how come you can't be a good dude, right? We can't keep our rules and we get really depressed. God's never going to love me. He's never going to be with me. Listen, I, I used to believe this heavily as a teenager. I can remember uh, towards the end of my senior year of, of high school, I just thought like, man, I was really into climbing and I just thought like, if I sin this week, then God's going to punish me when I'm climbing and I'm going to take a big fall. Right? You been there? Ever believe God's going to do that to you? It's not the way God works. In fact, even in Job's case, we see he begins to get mad at God and accuse God of injustice. In fact, look at this is where many people believe that, God, that Job takes it a little too far. Job 9, 22 through 24. He says, look, if this is the way God works, all is one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of of the judges. If it's not him, then who is it? In other words, God, you laugh at people's calamity. You cover the face of the judges so that you can do wrongdoing. And I know it's you. In fact, when God appears at the end of the book, he talks to Job. He asks him this question, Job 48, would you invalidate my justice? Would you condemn me so that you could be righteous, Job? Pain and hurt will tempt us to change our theology to justify ourselves and make us look right. Right? We condemn God to make ourselves look right. We see this all the time. We sit in the victim chair and we want to sit as a judge over the situation and the, the people around us, even God. God, why are you doing this? That's wrong, God. And we give our verdict, whether true or not. And Job has made himself the judge over God instead of letting God's word lead and guide him and God's character be what he puts his faith in. In fact, in Job's retributive thinking, he believes he has some claim on God to, to a good life. I've been holy, God. You owe me good things. And boy, are we entitled to believe we have a claim to lead a good life. This is deep in our evangelical culture. We do this all the time. Things don't go our way. We blame God, right? That's actually the right guy to blame, by the way. But we accuse him of wrongdoing. We get offended at what he does, and we either change our theology or we go away apart from God. He's just an ogre that wants to be mean. He won't let me be my true self. And so we claim injustice. So what are the gospel answers to this? Okay, let's look at these here. Job 38 through 42. When God appears to Job, just by the nature of his appearance, he makes clear the incorrect thinking that's going around. 
I think that's pretty cool. Just by his glory and his majesty, everybody shuts their mouths and understands. (laughs) And God teaches Job through all his questions. Pastor Jim said there's 77 questions that God, he is doing something better and bigger and something that is good in Job's life and the world, which he could never imagine or understand. And that's our first answer to this retributive kind of thinking. We have to see that the Bible teaches us that God is doing something greater than we could ever understand in every circumstance of our life. We have to rest in it. Pastor Jim had a great quote from Charles Spurgeon, that God's sovereignty is the pillow that we rest our head on in adversity. That's so good. God controls all things, and so he uses all the events of our life and the world for his ultimate good purposes because he is good. That's his character. You know, we have this little equation in our head that when we sin, that equals pain. Okay, Now, that's a good equation. We need to know that. We've got to teach our kids that. But the reverse is not true. Our pain doesn't always equal the fact that we've sinned. God is not always angry at us if we are experiencing pain and suffering. In fact, God's answer to Job is not an explanation of his situation because Job wouldn't understand what God is doing, but rather God's answer to Job is that, Job, you're not thinking about me big enough. I'm not punishing you for your sin. I'm not rewarding you for your good behavior. But I'm doing something bigger in you in the world than you'd ever understand. So relax. Put your faith in me. Trust me that this is going to end really well. Trust that I am working for your good and my glory even when the suffering is really dark. Now, Jesus points this out in John chapter 9 as the blind man. And the disciples asked Jesus, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? That's retributive thinking. God must have punished this man with blindness because of his sin. And what does Jesus say? Neither. It was so that the works of God could be displayed in him. God's bigger purpose. He's saying all the suffering would be worth it because I would heal this man's sight so that people would know my character and find salvation in me. And that's way bigger than this. In fact, all we got to do is look to the cross of Christ to see that God can do really amazing things through and in the midst of great suffering and tragedy. Jesus on the cross looked like his ministry was over. He was one more Messiah that had died at the hands of the Romans. He endured excruciating physical suffering that only slightly mirrors the spiritual suffering that he was under. And the whole world thought he was a failure. But what was God doing? God was doing one of the greatest works of salvation that is ever known. Acts 2.23 tells us that God had planned to crucify Jesus before the foundations of the world were ever laid. This was God's plan A, to save the world, to glorify Christ and to save us and to show the world what God is like. Way bigger than suffering on a cross. 
And so when we look at the cross, we can know that God is at work for good even when our situation and suffering is really dire. Answer number two that the Bible teaches us when we look at this, what, what pushes back our retributive thinking is this, that in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. You ever think about that? Look at this, Ephesians 2, we were looking at this in our Sunday school class, chapter 1, but now here's the second part of the story. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us, look, you were dead in your sins, you're following the ways of the world and are by nature children of wrath. In other words, you deserve punishment and death. That's what we deserve for our sin from God. That's how he sees us at first, but verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love, made us alive in Christ. He seated us with Christ so that we could experience his grace. You don't get what you deserve in Jesus. We have a God who in Jesus does not give us what we deserve. We get the very opposite, in fact. Where we deserve death and punishment, we get love and mercy and grace. This is where if we live in retributive theology, it's completely antithetical to the gospel. I'm amazed at how God treats me even in the midst of my sin. Are you amazed by that? You ever wonder about that? Like, why is God so good to me? I've been terrible. That's God's grace to you, right? In fact, Romans 2.4 tells us that, look, this is God's kindness to you that's meant to lead you to repentance. He's not retributive. He's full of grace and patience. In fact, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53.10 that it actually pleased God to crush Jesus so that we would be saved from our sins. That's not a retributive God. Isaiah 53.5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. If you think God is out to get you for the sins you committed, you need to look at the cross. Right? In the cross, we get what we don't deserve. We get love and mercy and grace in exchange for our broken. Of thinking that God is perpetually unhappy with you and is punishing you at every turn. If you've been trying so hard to live up to what you think He demands of you to His standards, then I want to invite you to step into the grace of God and get what you don't deserve. And God can do this because he dealt with your sins on the cross. See, we take all of our sins, and God was pleased to put them on Christ, deal with them. He's a just God, and yet Jesus lived a perfect life. And so when we come to the cross, these things trade places. My sin goes to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness comes to me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And if we're the righteousness of God, that means that God looks at you as if you did the works of Christ and he is perfectly happy with you. You are holy and perfect and God is pleased with you. Every day, all the time, wherever you are, whatever you've done, he never changes. He is pleased with you. And this is where we see that it's God's favor to us that then inflames our heart to follow him in obedience. 
we can be obedient to him because we've already got the favor. We don't have to be obedient to get the favor. Band, you can come on up. I love this. You know, in the book of Job, he keeps looking for somebody that would go to God, go before God for him, right? Just Job's just hoping, like, please, isn't there somebody that could argue my case before God? Right? Like, I'm, I'm innocent. Can somebody defend me? Is there any defender out there? Job 19, 23 through 25 says this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Irony. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. He's saying, I know there's somebody out there that can defend me. Who is it? Where is He? I want all this written down so one day we'll see that I was defended, right? Job longs for someone to plead his case. And guess what? On both accounts, Job was right. His words were written down. 4.14. And, and these redeemers would raise up children for the deceased husbands, or sometimes they would go on behalf of somebody in a lawsuit. Sometimes even God in Psalm 119, we see that he is looked for as the redeemer that would plead a case. Even his friends know that there could be a redeemer out there. Eliphaz says it in Job 5.1, and Elihu, the wild young guy, says it in Job 33. He was looking for somebody to prove he is right before God. And yet the redeemer that God ultimately sent in Christ was far more than that. When Jesus came, we begin to have an advocate before the throne of God. But guess what? He's not losing. He's not arguing our case. Our case is a losing case. He's arguing his case. He's arguing what he did on the cross and applied to us and saying, you ought to let him in, God, because of what I did. Had nothing to do with what we did. And so our Redeemer didn't justify us, but he stood as the just before God and applied his grace to us so that all could come in. The Bible says that now he's standing before the Father advocating for us daily, praying for us, that we would experience God's love and mercy and grace and grow in sanctification so that we could be with God. Yeah. As we come to a close this morning, we're going to sing and take communion together. And communion is a celebration of what God has done in Christ. That in Christ, my sins have been paid for through his death. And in return, I get his righteousness as I pledge in my life. So we're going to come together now and celebrate this. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word that speaks to us. Lord, would you help us to get the amazing thing you've done in your son? That we don't get what we deserve. We all find grace. Lord, may that light up our heart. And may we leap into the kingdom of you. Father, speak to our hearts. Deal with us where we wrestle with this, Father. May your spirit make it clear. Father, help us to celebrate what your son has done now. In Christ's name we pray.